Section 5 of Jean Christophe, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joshua Seeger in Chicago. Jean Christophe, Volume 1, by Romain Roland. Translated by Gilbert Canaan. Dawn 2, Part 3. One day, when he was rummaging in a cupboard, he came upon several things that he did not know. A child's frock and a striped bonnet. He took them in triumph to his mother, who, instead of smiling at him, looked vexed and bade him take them back to the place where he had found them. When he hesitated to obey and asked her why, she snatched them from him without reply and put them on a shelf where he could not reach them. Roused to curiosity, he plied her with questions. At last she told him that there had been a little brother who had died before Jean Christophe came into the world. He was taken aback. He had never heard tell of him. He was silent for a moment and then tried to find out more. His mother seemed to be lost in thought, but she told him that the little brother was called Jean Christophe like himself, but was more sensible. He put more questions to her but she would not reply readily. She told him only that his brother was in heaven and was praying for them all. Jean Christophe could get no more out of her. She bade him be quiet and to let her go on with her work. She seemed to be absorbed in her sewing. She looked anxious and did not raise her eyes, but after some time she looked at him where he was in the corner, whither he had retired to sulk, began to smile, and told him to go and play outside. These scraps of conversation profoundly agitated Jean Christophe. There had been a child, a little boy, belonging to his mother, like himself, bearing the same name, almost exactly the same, and he was dead. Dead! He did not exactly know what that was, but it was something terrible, and they never talked of this other Jean Christophe. He was quite forgotten. It would be the same with him if he were to die? This thought was with him still in the evening at table with his family, when he saw them all laughing and talking of trifles. So, then, it was possible that they would be gay after he was dead. Oh, he never would have believed that his mother could be selfish enough to laugh after the death of her little boy. He hated them all. He wanted to weep for himself, for his own death, in advance. At the same time, he wanted to ask a whole heap of questions, but he dared not. He remembered the voice in which his mother had bid him be quiet. At last, he could contain himself no longer, and one night, when he had gone to bed and Louisa came to kiss him, he asked, Mother, did he sleep in my bed? The poor woman trembled, and trying to take on an indifferent tone of voice, she asked, Who? The little boy who is dead, said Jean Christophe in a whisper. His mother clutched him with her hands. Be quiet, quiet, she said. Her voice trembled. Jean Christophe, whose head was leaning against her bosom, heard her heart beating. There was a moment of silence. Then she said, You must never talk of that, my dear. Go to sleep. No, it was not his bed. She kissed him. 
He thought he felt her cheek wet against his. He wished he could have been sure of it. He was a little comforted. There was grief in her then. Then he doubted it again the next moment, when he heard her in the next room talking in a quiet, ordinary voice. Which was true? That, or what had just been? He turned about for long in his bed, without finding any answer. He wanted his mother to suffer. Not that he also did not suffer in the knowledge that she was sad, but it would have done him so much good in spite of everything. He would have felt himself less alone. He slept, and next day thought no more of it. Some weeks afterwards one of the urchins with whom he played in the street did not come at the usual time. One of them said that he was ill, and they got used to not seeing him in their games. It was explained. It was quite simple. One evening Jean-Christophe had gone to bed. It was early, and from the recess in which his bed was, he saw the light in the room. There was a knock at the door. A neighbor had come to have a chat. He listened absently, telling himself stories as usual. The words of their talk did not reach him. Suddenly he heard the neighbor say, He is dead. His blood stopped, for he had understood who was dead. He listened and held his breath. His parents cried out. Melchior's booming voice said, Jean-Christophe, do you hear? Poor Fritz is dead. Jean-Christophe made an effort and replied quietly, Yes, Papa. His bosom was drawn tight as in a vice. Melchior went on, Yes, Papa? Is that all you say? You are not grieved by it? Louisa, who understood the child, said, Shh! Let him sleep! And they talked in whispers, but Jean-Christophe, pricking his ears, gathered all the details of illness. Typhoid fever, cold baths, delirium, the parents' grief. He could not breathe. A lump in his throat choked him. He shuddered. All these horrible things took shape in his mind. Above all, he gleaned that the disease was contagious, that is, that he also might die in the same way. And terror froze him, for he remembered that he had shaken hands with Fritz the last time he had seen him, and that very day had gone past the house. But he made no sound, so as to avoid having to talk, and when his father, after the neighbor had gone, asked him, Jean-Christophe, are you asleep? He did not reply. He heard Melchior saying to Louisa, The boy has no heart. Louisa did not reply, but a moment later she came and gently raised the curtain and looked at the little bed. Jean-Christophe only just had time to close his eyes and imitate the regular breathing which his brothers made when they were asleep. Louisa went away on tiptoe, and yet how he wanted to keep her, how he wanted to tell her that he was afraid and to ask her to save him, or at least to comfort him. But he was afraid of their laughing at him, and treating him as a coward, and besides, he knew only too well that nothing that they might say would be any good, and for hours he lay there in agony, thinking that he felt the disease creeping over him, and pains in his head, a stricture of the heart, and thinking in terror, It is the end. I am ill. I am going to die. I am going to die. Once he sat up in his bed and called to his mother in a low voice, but they were asleep, and he dared not wake them. 
From that time on, his childhood was poisoned by the idea of death. His nerves delivered him up to all sorts of little baseless sicknesses, to depression, to sudden transports, and fits of choking. His imagination ran riot with these troubles, and thought it saw in all of them the murderous beast which was to rob him of his life. How many times he suffered agonies, with his mother sitting only a few yards away from him, and she guessing nothing. For in his cowardice he was brave enough to conceal all his terror in a strange jumble of feeling, pride in not turning to others, shame of being afraid, and the scrupulousness of a tenderness which forbade him to trouble his mother. But he never ceased to think, This time I am ill. I am seriously ill. It is diphtheria. He had chanced on the word diphtheria. Dear God, not this time. He had religious ideas. He loved to believe what his mother had told him, that after death the soul ascended to the Lord, and if it were pious, entered into the garden of paradise. But the idea of this journey rather frightened than attracted him. He was not at all envious of the children whom God, as a recompense, according to his mother, took in their sleep and called to him without having made them suffer. He trembled as he went to sleep, for fear that God should indulge this whimsy at his expense. It must be terrible to be taken suddenly from the warmth of one's bed and dragged through the void into the presence of God. He imagined God as an enormous sun with a voice of thunder. How it must hurt! It must burn the eyes, ears, all one's soul. Then God could punish. You never know. And besides, that did not prevent all the other horrors which he did not know very well, though he could guess them from what he had heard. Your body in a box, all alone at the bottom of a hole, lost in the crowd of those revolting cemeteries to which he was taken to pray. God! God! How sad! How sad! And yet it was not exactly joyous to live, and be hungry, and see your father drunk, and to be beaten, to suffer in so many ways from the wickedness of other children, from the insulting pity of grown-up persons, and to be understood by no one, not even by your mother. Everybody humiliates you. No one loves you. You are alone, alone, and matter so little. Yes, but it was just this that made him want to live. He felt in himself a surging power of wrath, a strange thing, that power. It could do nothing yet. It was as though it were afar off and gagged, swaddled, paralyzed. He had no idea what it wanted, what, later on, it would be. But it was in him. He was sure of it. He felt it stirring and crying out, Tomorrow, tomorrow, what a voyage he would take. He had a savage desire to live, to punish the wicked, to do great things. Oh, but how I will live when I am... He pondered a little. When I am eighteen! Sometimes he put it at twenty-one. That was the extreme limit. He thought that was enough for the domination of the world. He thought of the heroes dearest to him, of Napoleon, and of that other more remote hero, whom he preferred, Alexander the Great. Surely he would be like them if only he lived for another twelve, ten years. He never thought of pitying those who died at thirty. 
They were old. They had lived their lives. It was their fault if they had failed. But to die now? Despair! Too terrible to pass while yet a little child, and forever to be in the minds of men a little boy whom everybody thinks he has the right to scold. He wept with rage at the thought, as though he were already dead. This agony of death tortured his childish years, corrected only by disgust with all life and the sadness of his own. It was in the midst of these gloomy shadows, in the stifling night that every moment seemed to intensify about him, that there began to shine, like a star lost in the dark abysm of space, the light which was to illuminate his life, divine music. His grandfather gave the children an old piano, which one of his clients, anxious to be rid of it, had asked him to take. His patient ingenuity had almost put it in order. The present had not been very well received. Louisa thought her room already too small, without filling it up any more, and Melchior said that Jean-Michel had not ruined himself over it, just firewood. Only Jean-Christophe was glad of it, without exactly knowing why. It seemed to him a magic box, full of marvelous stories, just like the ones in the fairy book, a volume of the Thousand and One Nights, which his grandfather read to him sometimes, to their mutual delight. He had heard his father try the piano on the day of its arrival, and draw from it a little rain of arpeggios, like the drops that a puff of wind shakes from the wet branches of a tree after a shower. He clapped his hands and cried, Encore! But Melchior scornfully closed the piano, saying that it was worthless. Jean-Christophe did not insist, but after that he was always hovering about the instrument. As soon as no one was near, he would raise the lid and softly press down a key, just as if he were moving with his finger the living shell of some great insect. He wanted to push out the creature that was locked up in it. Sometimes, in his haste, he would strike too hard, and then his mother would cry out, "'Will you not be quiet? Don't go touching everything!' Or else he would pinch himself cruelly in closing the piano and make piteous faces as he sucked his bruised fingers. Now his greatest joy is when his mother is gone out for a day's service, or to pay some visit in the town. He listens as she goes down the stairs and into the street and away. He is alone. He opens the piano and brings up a chair and perches on it. His shoulders just about reach the keyboard. It is enough for what he wants. Why does he wait until he is alone? No one would prevent his playing so long as he did not make too much noise. But he is ashamed before the others and dare not. And then they talk and move about. That spoils his pleasure. It is so much more beautiful when he is alone. Jean-Christophe holds his breath so that the silence may be even greater, and also because he is a little excited, as though he were going to let off a gun. His heart beats as he lays his finger on the key. Sometimes he lifts his finger after he has the key half-pressed down and lays it on another. Does he know what will come out of it? More than what will come out of the other? Suddenly a sound issues from it. 
there are deep sounds and high sounds some tinkling some roaring the child listens to them one by one as they die away and finally cease to be they hover in the air like bells heard far off coming near in the wind and then going away again then when you listen you hear in the distance other voices different joining in and droning like flying insects they seem to call to you to draw you away farther farther and farther into the mysterious regions where they dive down and are lost they are gone no still they murmur a little beating of wings how strange it all is they are like spirits how is it that they are so obedient how is it that they are held captive in this old box but best of all is when you lay two fingers on two keys at once then you never know exactly what will happen sometimes the two spirits are hostile they are angry with each other and fight and hate each other and buzz testily then voices are raised they cry out angrily now sorrowfully jean christophe adores that it is as though there were monsters chained up biting at their fetters beating against the bars of their prison they are like to break them and burst out like the monsters in the fairy book the genie imprisoned in the arab bottles under the seal of solomon others flatter you they try to cajole you but you feel that they only want to bite that they are hot and fevered jean christophe does not know what they want but they lure him and disturb him they make him almost blush and sometimes there are notes that love each other sounds embrace as people do with their arms when they kiss they are gracious and sweet these are the good spirits their faces are smiling and there are no lines in them they love little jean christophe and little jean christophe loves them tears come to his eyes as he hears them and he is never weary of calling them up they are his friends his dear tender friends so the child journeys through the forest of sounds and round him he is conscious of thousands of forces lying in wait for him and calling to him to caress or devour him one day melchior came upon him thus he made him jump with fear at the sound of his great voice jean christophe thinking he was doing wrong quickly put his hands up to his ears to ward off the blows he feared but melchior did not scold him strange to say he was in a good temper and laughed you like that boy he asked patting his head kindly would you like me to teach you to play it would he like delighted he murmured yes the two of them sat down at the piano jean christophe perched this time on a pile of big books and very attentively he took his first lesson he learned first of all that the buzzing spirits have strange names like chinese names of one syllable or even of one letter he was astonished he imagined them to be different from that beautiful caressing names like the princesses in the fairy stories he did not like the familiarity with which his father talked of them again when melchior evoked them they were not the same they seemed to become indifferent as they rolled out from under his fingers 
but john christophe was glad to learn about the relationships between them their hierarchy the scales which were like a king commanding an army or like a band of negroes marching in single file he was surprised to see that each soldier or each negro could become a monarch in his turn or the head of a similar band and that it was possible to summon whole battalions from one end to the other of the keyboard it amused him to hold the thread which made them march but it was a small thing compared with what he had seen at first his enchanted forest was lost however he set himself to learn for it was not tiresome and he was surprised at his father's patience melchior did not weary of it either he made him begin the same thing over again ten times jean christophe did not understand why he should take so much trouble his father loved him then that was good the boy worked away his heart was filled with gratitude he would have been less docile had he known what thoughts were springing into being in his father's head End of section five.